0: grab a seat, and as you grab a seat, grab a Bible with you uh, and turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, if you need a Bible under a seat nearby, you will find a Bible under one of those chairs, and if you don't own a Bible, please take that. That's our gift to you, especially as we begin a brand new series today in the book of Acts. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word at home with you, and so uh, Acts is the fifth book into the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you will find this book of Acts where we will be camped out here uh, for a a good chunk of time as a family. And as we begin a new series today, I work really hard, I work really hard to make sure I don't say what I'm about to say at the beginning of every series. Because if I said what what I'm about to say at the beginning of every series we started, it would mean very little. But what I'm about to say, I say because I believe it deep down in the very core of my heart, and that is this. I don't think we have preached a sermon series yet that has the potential to completely transform the way we think about walking with Jesus like this series has the potential to transform it. I believe this series, as we look at this birth of this thing called the church, this, this beginning of the Jesus movement after he leaves, as we study how these people lived and how they understood what it meant to follow Jesus, I believe at my core, this could radically flip our world upside down in all the best ways. I think as we get into this book, uh, God's going to begin to shape and mold what it means for us to follow Jesus. Because I don't know about you, but I just transparently and honestly, there have been days and there have been seasons in my life when I have looked in the mirror and I've just asked the question, um, Jesus, is this really what you had in mind when you said, come follow me? Is, is this... Jesus, is this really what you are after? And what I mean by that is, were you really after my life just really kind of blending in with the rest of the community and the rest of culture with a little bit of you sprinkled on top? Lord, were you really just after kind of my life, the whole whole pie of my life, just looking like everyone else with with just a little Jesus sliver as part of that? Or Jesus, was this thing of following you supposed to be an all-consuming, overwhelming, life-transforming passion? Like I see when I study this book of your early followers, are you here and are you bored following Jesus? Are you here and have you ever asked the question, is is this really what um, people say it is? Here's the deal, as we get into this book, we are going to find this early Jesus movement radically consumed by this person, this God-man named Jesus, and radically transforming the communities and the world in which they interacted. I don't know about you, but I want that. I want that kind of following after Jesus. What you see here about this thing he calls the church. This group of people that was that's supposed to be a group of people just on this radical movement uh, to proclaim the gospel across the globe, to make disciples to the glory of God. They didn't view it as the just a building that they went to for an hour and a half a week. They didn't view it as, as, as just a service they attended. It radically transformed the way that they interacted every single day. What if God wants that to be said of his church today? What if, as we live in a community where as we drive down the roads, there's churches that line them, churches that line them, churches that line them. Um, What if those churches became the church of Jesus Christ that it radically transforms everything about the community in which they're planted. That's what we're after in this series. An all-consuming, heart-transforming, radical following after of Jesus to gain a good, a better understanding of what it means to follow him and what it means to be his church lived out in our life. And so here's a question I want to raise for us as we begin this series. And the question is this. How did the very first Jesus followers understand what it means to follow Jesus? Think about that question. As we open these pages, what we're going to study is the movement of the very first church, the very first Jesus movement. How did they understand what it was to look like to follow Jesus? Because we know this, things drift over time. Uh, uh, Illustrate that, put a boat in a body of water, don't tie it to a dock, go to sleep that night, come out the next morning, and where will that boat be? Who knows? Down the shore, in the middle of the lake, Oh, oh, things drift over time. Do that again another night, the boat will be across the lake. Things drift over time. What am I talking about a boat for? Here's the deal. We have to acknowledge that since this day of these Jesus followers, we're going to study, almost 2,000 years has passed. And in 2,000 years... Throughout the different centuries, throughout different church traditions, we have created some constructs, maybe an added on here, what it looks like, what we think it looks like to follow Jesus. We have to get back to the heart of the question, what did these early Jesus followers understand about what it meant to follow Jesus? What did they understand about what it meant to be the church? And how does that get us back to this radical following, life-transforming All in action that we see right here. You with me on that? You ready for that? You want to get after that with your life and with this church? Let's pray for that and let's get into it. Father, God, I come before you now. And uh, Lord, we don't, we don't, we desperately just don't want to just kind of go through Jesus motions. Lord, we don't want you to be a sliver of the pie, we want you to be the whole thing. Lord, we don't want you sprinkled into our normal everyday life. We want you to be at the foundation of it, radically shaping every day-to-day interaction and task that we perform. We want to be a Jesus people. And Lord, as we study throughout the course of this coming series, what that looked like in the early days of this church forming, Lord, would this radically transform the way we think about what it means to follow you? Would it radically transform the way we think about what it means for us to be a church? And Lord, would we see the pouring out of the power of your spirit on your people like we see in this book? You are the same God. You want to do a mighty work in our midst, and you want to do a mighty work in our midst for your glory, that everyone watching would just go look at the God of the universe doing that. So God, will you please, Lord, make us into your kind of people through this study. We beg you for that, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So today's message, is we begin a new series, um, let me break today's message into two parts. And here's part one. Part one, we're going to spend some time introducing the book of Acts. Because here's the deal. Um, anytime we read something, we have to put what we're reading into its proper context. If you've been around Harvest any time at all, you know every time we begin a new book, I say something like this that we have to set into its context, understand the context and background in which a book of the Bible is written. And here's the deal. We do this with everything that we read, whether we think about that or not. When we go to the mailbox and pick a letter out of the mailbox, we begin to immediately put it in its context. We look at the return address, right? We see who it came from. As we open it up, we begin to kind of make some um, judgments about it. If it's a type letter on a letterhead, we go, this is going to be a bit more formal. If this is handwritten in a note, um, we know this is a bit more personal. We do this when we stroll down the aisle at Barnes & Noble. Before, How many Barnes & Noble fans in here? May God bless you all. Love that place, my little getaway down here. When you stroll the aisle at Barnes & Noble... Before you buy a book, you pick it up. You look at the cover. You read the back cover. You understand what the, who the author is. Everything we read, we just kind of naturally put into context. We have to do the same thing with the book of Acts. So part one, we're just going to introduce ourselves to this book. Part two then... We're going to get into it and have some practical application from the very first verses of the book of Acts for our life today. So part one, let me introduce us to this work that we traditionally call the Acts of the Apostles. And to do that, we can use um, Acts chapter 1 and verse 1 to help set the stage for this. So get there with me, Acts 1.1. And we're going to read the first, um, first couple words of this verse. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus. Now, just stop right there for a second, and um, when you study the Bible, interrogate the text, ask questions of it. When you begin the book of Acts, and it starts, the first four words of the book says, in the first book, what's a good question we should be asking as we read this? What's the first book? That... Obviously, the writer of the book of Acts, this is not his first work. So who was the writer of the book of Acts? The writer of the book of Acts was a physician, a doctor by the name of Luke, Dr. Luke. Um, Luke was most likely a, not a Jewish man, but a Gentile, a non-Jew, who early on in the Jesus movement decides that he's going to follow this Jewish rabbi, this, who he believes is the Christ, the Messiah of all of the world. Um, Luke was the kind of guy you hated talking to at a party. Luke was the kind of guy who made you ask the question, what am I doing with my life? hey, hey, Luke, what do you do? Oh, I'm, I'm a doctor, um, and so by day, I save people's lives, and then at night, um, I basically record some things that are going to be studied for the next 2,000 years as world-class history. <laughs> what do you do? I do stuff like that. Like, Luke was the, like, I want you to understand this. Luke was Brilliant. And non-Christian scholars read his works and they go, yeah, like I don't really like what he has to say, but that's pretty good to history. That's pretty spot on stuff. I want us to get this because as we get into the book of Acts, we are going to come across and be confronted with some radically supernatural work. We are going to stumble across as we study this book, like God shows up and God does some crazy awesome stuff. Get this, this was not recorded by some religious nut living out in the hills somewhere. This was a world-class, brilliant physician who's a world-class historian as like a side job. Unbelievable stuff. In the first book, it tells us um, Luke... Luke's written a book before this. Any guesses to what that book might be? The Gospel of Luke. And so to understand something, that Luke acts is a two-volume work. They go together. Have you ever understood that Luke and Acts go together? It's crucial for us to get a right understanding of the book of Acts as we study it, that this is the second volume of a two-part work and Luke begins this two-part work in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke with these words. It's on the screen. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished. among. Do you think the dude's smart? Like, can you see him there like just chewing on the edge of his glasses? Inasmuch... That's the right reaction. We don't know. Um, Theophilus most likely could be a political leader. Uh, the way that Luke refers to him as most excellent uh, speaks to a level of respect, uh, a dignitary that you would refer to uh, correctly. Um, I'm looking. Um, this is off the cuff, but Brian, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use our friendship here. Um, we, use, we use titles of respect out of people. Um, Um, When Brian and Donna started coming to the church uh, shortly after, um, Brian was a a general, and we thank him for his service, but he was a general. And um, I had a meeting with a young couple, and they're like, did you know General Copes comes to our church? And I'm like, Brian? (laughs) But for these people serving in our military, they they were never going to refer to Brian, my friend Brian, as he was General Copes. And there's a level of rightful respect in how they, how they talked about him. And this is what you see with Luke. We don't know exactly who Theophilus was, but there's a level of respect, most excellent Theophilus. And so he's writing a two-part work. And he's writing this orderly account to this man named Theophilus. Now, let's understand what Luke's goal is as he writes Volumes 1 and Volumes 2. Of the work of Jesus. Uh, Luke's goal is this to compile an orderly account of the life of Jesus and the movement of Jesus. Volume one is the book of Luke. Volume one records the orderly account of the life of Jesus up to the ascension. Now, church words, let's get them all so we're all on the same page. Crucifixion refers to Jesus dying uh, on the cross. Resurrection refers to Jesus rising from the dead, stone rolled away. He walked out of that grave, and all God's people said, yeah. conquered sin, conquered death, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Jesus is alive, but he's not walking here in flesh and blood with us. He has gone where he's uh, ruling and reigning in heaven and when he's going to come back one day and he's going to establish his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven and all God's people said Amen. amen and so Luke is the orderly account of the life of Jesus up to him ascending into heaven then that's where the book of Acts picks up and this is a really important question what happened next Because in the Jesus movement, when he died and then when he leaves, you would think it would just kind of fizzle out and die, but that's not what you see. It gains steam. It it grows in number and in power. And the book of Acts records, records the orderly account of the Jesus movement after his ascension. And now... Couple more things before we get into the first couple verses in detail. Go back to your Bible, Acts 1 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. I want you to notice something very intentional that Luke writes in the beginning of this. In the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus, what, what began to do and to teach. Get this now. Sometimes when we begin to study the book of Acts, we get so enamored with the people in the book. We look at the early church leaders and we're like, oh my goodness, look at what they're doing and look at how awesome and look at their heroes. And let, Yes, we should rightfully hold them up as pioneers of our faith, but don't miss this. The hero of the book of Acts aren't the apostles themselves. The book of Acts, and it's on your notes and I want us to write it down. Acts is ultimately the story of the continued work of Jesus through his spirit in his people. Get that. How do I know that? Luke says... In my first book, I wrote all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The point of the second book is all that Jesus continues to do and to teach by the power of his spirit dwelling in his people. Folks, this is good news for us. We have a Savior who is alive, and guess what? He's alive and he's active. He is not up in heaven right now, high view of Christ right here. He is not up in heaven right now going, yep, I ascended, and let me kick my feet back and twiddle my thumbs. And like, Father, when you send me back, I'm ready. But until then, I'm just chilling. That is not our Savior. He is alive and he is active in our world right now by the power of his spirit inside of his people. And he's got some work he wants to get done. And he's going to send his spirit here in the coming weeks as we study this and his spirit's going to grip his people and his people are, be gonna, are going to begin to get to work and radically turn the world on its head. Last thing. The book of Acts, Acts ends with chapter 28. But here's the deal. The work that Jesus is doing through, by his spirit, through his people, does not end with Acts 28. It is to go on and on and on and on through every generation and all of his people and dwell with his spirit until he comes back. That is the Jesus life that he is calling us to. Not our regular old life with a little sliver of Jesus in the process. I want that! I want that. You with me? So, for 10 months, you heard me right. For 10 months, we are camping out in this book. Some of you, 10 months. Hear it now. The slower we go, the deeper we dive into the word of God the deeper he drives that word into our heart, the more we fall in love with it, the more we hunger for it, the more we want it, the more it changes us. The word of God is not a microwave, it's a smoker. I mean, it is, it is a brisket, you just pulled the bone right out of, come on now, right? And I'm confident What will God do in our midst as we camp out for 10 months in this book? What will he do to shape our church? What will he do to call us into the joy-filled, radical following after of him? That's what we're after in this. So part one, the introduction to the book of Acts. Now let's go to part two here. Um, Part two, and I want us to pick it up here in verse three before you. He presented himself alive to them, to his followers, to these disciples. He presented, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during how long? During 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now just stop right there and let's understand something. For the typical Jewish man or woman, they were waiting for the Messiah to come. There's been this long wait. Oh, come, Lord, send this Messiah. Now, their perception when the Messiah came, this Savior, he was going to establish his rule and reign on earth right then. He was going to establish a geopolitical kingdom where he would set up his kingdom. And so the Jesus followers are like, he's come, Messiah's here, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they go to the scene, they go to Calvary, they watch him crucified on a cross, and they go, that's not how this is supposed to work. And in the days following Jesus' death, imagine the confusion and chaos of these people who had been following him. I love what the Gospel of John knows. A lot of them, you know what they do? They go back fishing. They go do what they were doing before Jesus called them. We wouldn't have known what else to do. And then he raises. And then he begins to appear to them. And over the course of 40 days, he appears to them bodily. He's eating with them. He's teaching them, and he's teaching them, back with your text in front of you, Verse 3, he's teaching them over 40 days and he's speaking about the kingdom of God. He is now unpacking before them what we have as our Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures that speak to that the Messiah must suffer, he must pay the penalty for sin and death, he will rise again, he will establish his kingdom. The, Jesus is unpacking all of this for them so that they can now understand what this is all about and then he gets to verse four and while staying with them what what do you do while staying with them he ordered them so stop don't read ahead don't read ahead get it now you've been following jesus You think he's dead. He's risen from the dead. Uh, You've seen him. He's now been over the course of 40 days. He's appeared to you in different times. He's been explaining to you what the kingdom of God, what it means, when it will be established. He's been teaching you all this. And now he's going to get to the place where he's going to give you a charge. He's going to give you an order. And now like the old athlete in me pictures Jesus up in front of a locker room with his team in front of him and I expect the order to be, and now go! There's a world to reach. There's a gospel to preach. There's lives to be changed, and I want you to go. Look at what he says. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to what? But to wait. Can you picture Peter there? Resurrected Jesus in front of him. He's just been teaching him about the kingdom. I mean, Peter's already got like the army stuff on, ready to walk out the door, and Jesus says, here's what I need you to do. Here's what I need you to do. You ready? You ready? I need you to not do anything. What? But to wait, to wait for what? For the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with who? With the the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Jesus just taught something monumental. He just told his followers, if you don't wait, if you guys just say, ready break and leave this room and start doing ministry in my name and start trying to live out this Jesus life, you don't yet have the power to do it. You will burn out. You will be frustrated. You will crash and burn. I need you, Jesus speaking, I need you all to just wait till I send my spirit. Throughout the course of the series, these 10 months are broken into subseries, sub-series, and the first sub-series that we camp out in the weeks to come is simply called this Power, the Holy Spirit. And as we begin in this first, first month of the book of Acts, Jesus next week is going to tell his followers, why they were to wait, because until the Spirit came and indwelt them, they had no power to go fulfill this mission that he had given them to fulfill. And so for us today, here's an application point, and it's on your notes. When Jesus says, wait, what do we do? Wait. Wait. Now, let me be very clear on this point of application for us in this room. In a couple weeks, we're going to see God send His Spirit. The Spirit's going to come. And the Spirit's going to indwell His people. We, in 2018, are living on the other side of what, that, that day that's called Pentecost. The Spirit has come. And when we trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, His Spirit dwells in us. We are are no longer waiting for the inauguration, for the coming of the Spirit. But here's the deal. You know this and I know this. God still gives His people the command today, the word that we hate to hear, wait. What does God ask us to wait on these days? Not the coming of His Spirit, but God will clearly ask us to wait on the prompting of His Spirit. He will ask us to wait on the leading of His Spirit. He will ask us to wait on Him going before us in the power of His Spirit. Because all of us in this room have experienced what it's like to be out in front of God to be trying to create something in our own strength. How's that go for us? It's draining. It's exhausting. We're getting no traction. We're trying to create something with no power to create it. And I look at us. I want you all to look at me right now. Look at me right now. There are those of us in the room today who Jesus is saying, I need you to wait. can I seat you in my waiting room? And will you let me do some things while you're seated there? But here's the problem. We often define a successful day, a successful year, and how much we get done. Where are my doers in the room? Doers? Where are my doers? Like, a, it ain't a good day unless every checklist item has a check next to it, right? We value just productivity, just guilt, just go, just go, just go, get stuff done, get stuff done, get stuff done. And so when Jesus says, I need you to stop, I need you to wait, I need you to let me plow the way, we struggle with that. Here's what I need you to hear today. The waiting time is not wasting time. Waiting time is not wasting time. Here's why. The greatest moves of God in our life come after we're willing to wait on this God to move. Some of you are in here today in very tangible waiting seasons. You need a job. You are waiting on the Lord to provide that job, that career that you're waiting for. Some of you are in here and you're waiting on God to finally break loose in the life of someone you love dearly, who you've prayed for for years and decades. Some of you are here and you're waiting on news. You're just waiting. You're just waiting for the letter to come. You're waiting for the phone call to come that you know as soon as you hear whether the yes or no comes is going to radically transform your life for the better or for the worse. And God has you. In a season of waiting, would you understand something? Would we understand something? The waiting time is not wasting time. And God's greatest moves in our life often follow the seasons we're willing to wait on that God to move. And this is what he says here you totally expect with all of the ministry, all the work that's got to get done, you totally expect Jesus to stand in front of his followers and go, now go, now go. That's coming. That's coming. But the command to go follows the command to wait because if they go without his power, it will epically fail. So I... Want to just illustrate this, just from something from my own life, and hopefully you'll be able to relate as we unpack this. Um, It was the spring of 2009 when I knew for the first time that God would one day call uh, call me call us to plant a church. And I was on a phenomenal church staff for the first five and a half years of ministry. And as part of being on that staff, there was an uh, our senior pastor really kind of took me under his wing. And kind of became my spiritual, my ministry dad, and so from 2009 on, every opportunity that looked like that arose to plant a church, I'd be like, "Is that it? Can I go do that? Can I go?" Do that? And he'd be like, "Simmer, young grasshopper. <laughs> Wait." Uh, it was the spring of 2013, and um, God had brought about an opportunity that my spiritual mentor was going. Hold on, I don't know how, but. I'm like, no. A church in Orlando, Florida had a vision to plant a church on the other side of Orlando, Florida. And uh, this opportunity was presented and I said, if there's ever a call of God on your life, it's certainly Orlando, Florida. (laughs) And um, if they would have sent the paperwork to agree to something prior to even flying down there, it probably would have been signed and ready to hand to them when we got there. We get on the plane in Indy Erica and I, Pastor DJ and Hillary, get on the plane in Indy. We land in Orlando within an hour. I'm not kidding you. Within an hour, it was a clear no. And I went, now, hold, hold, hold on, God. Do you see the entrance to Disney right there? He said, no. Hold on, hold on, hold on. It's February. You feel it out here? He said, no. And we got back on the plane. I looked at Eric. I said, this is what we've been waiting for. We've been waiting to plant a church. Like, we're going to say no to this. And God, from that spring of 2013, put us back into his waiting room for a year. And a year, like almost to the weeks, to the month, a year later comes And over that year, God had done something. He had finally brought my heart to a place. My wife's heart had always been there. She's way more mature than I am. He had finally brought my heart to a place where I said, you know what, God, I'm good. Like if you want us to stay here for like I'm I think I'm good with that. If you want us to go play in a church, I think I'm good. I'm just I'm I'm good. Whatever you want to do. Spring of twenty fourteen another call. Hey, got a small group of people on the south side of Indy looking to plant a church. The Lord began to confirm it, the spiritual mentor in our life. He said, look at me. You're going to do this. God is in this. And then when you leave another church to plant a church, it's not like super kind to just poach their staff and bring them with you. Like Rob Peter to pay Paul type thing the spiritual mentor, the senior pastor of that church said, and here's the deal, DJ's going with you and you guys are doing it together. Often the greatest moves of God in your life follow the season. You're willing to sit and wait and let that God move. And um, why I think God uses the waiting room, because I think he's doing something The waiting room for him is his greatest instrument of building faith inside of our heart. He just wants us to trust him. The waiting room is his ability to build that trust and to bring our heart to a place where we say, I believe you know best. And I believe you have every intention as my good daddy that you want my greatest good and you want your greatest glory through my life. I believe you know best. I believe you see the end from the beginning and I believe your perfect timing will prevail. That's God's purpose in the waiting. And these apostles who he says, I just need you to wait, the power's gonna unleash on them soon and they're gonna go and be a part of his story of great things built for his kingdom, but it only came after the waiting. And as we wait, God's building trust. Will you stand with me? so as we close today some of you in here have a very tangible you know it's clear as day what God's talking about where you're waiting and he's wanting to use it to build trust in your heart others of you just tuck this sermon away and bring it out on the day where it becomes clear but as we sing this now Sing it as a prayer. Sing it. Sing it. Asking God to birth trust and faith in your heart while, you have, while He has you in the unknown of the waiting.